thank you for coming today. Uh, yeah, my name is Al. I teach at Sioux Center Christian School uh, in Northwest Iowa. Uh, my wife and I have, oh, I'm tangled up already. My wife and I have four children. You all make us very proud. Just show you a quick picture. Um, and Sioux Center is a small town in the Northwest Iowa. I know that some of you have been there. So our situation is not a big city, especially not inner city, so in one sense it's easy to, to survive and to thrive in our school community because the larger community surrounding our school is excuse me, safe and predictable. Crime is low, employment is high, people of our town mow their lawns not on Sundays. <laughs> they wash their cars. Uh, wash their cars, pull their weeds, pick up after their dogs. Our families eat meals, cook, cook meals and eat them together. And when we're finished, we store the leftovers and use cooler bowls. <laughs> so with all this sameness and predictability, some people wonder what I could possibly know about classroom behavior problems. Well, in spite of all that I've told you, um, not all of our children feel completely safe partly because two years ago today actually two years ago today um, our school quite suddenly became associated with the biggest abuse scandal in the history of Sioux County and I'll be talking touching on that situation briefly in my next session um, hello uh, but there's another factor um, our children also many of them don't feel completely safe all the time because a lot of them worry that they don't that they don't measure up, that they don't fit in, and so they work very hard at at making sure that they look like and act like the others, which actually can make the work of teaching seem easy if if the most dominant students in the room care about their learning, but if the most influential students in a classroom don't care about their learning, or worse, if they actively resist learning. The others, are, the others are quick to absorb that, that mindset. Attitude germ is my term for that condition. Attitude because, <clears throat> attitude because it, it lives deeper than the outward behavior. The way <coughs> students think about their learning and the way they think about us, their teachers. Germ because it, it spreads kind of like a sickness, kind of like a cold or, or the flu. Students who are socially connected spread it more easily than those who keep it themselves. Um, as with any, any sickness, you've got people who are germy and people who become infected. In the classroom, we know them as, as instigators or, or culprits, antagonizers, and, and followers. Instigators are those who, who spread negativity or... or um, Activate resistance, they gain a sense of power through demotivating others, stealing attention away from learning. Followers, on the other hand, would be those who ingurgitate that negativity. I found that word in my thesaurus. I don't know if it fits, but I really like it. Followers ingurgitate that negativity, 
they're the ones who are drawn into that, that negative attitude or, or that different way of thinking about learning and, and teachers. And, um, teachers also can become infected with attitude germ, but we experience a different set of symptoms. So I'm going to be talking about, about us as teachers in just a little while. I'll talk a little bit about um, different strains of attitude germ. I'm just going to take this off for a few minutes. Uh, four different strains of attitude germ that I'm going to address today. There are more, but these are four basic ones. Comedy bug. Now, I'm not, I'm not knocking laughter. I love to laugh at my kids. And you probably do too. Laughter is good for the brain. It frees up storage space for more learning. And laughter builds community. But this strain of attitude germ is not interested in learning, enhancing the learning. It's not interested in, in pulling people uh, together. Um, comedy bug only wants to draw attention to the comedian. Inciting negativity or stink stirring. Catherine is my culprit here. She's a complainer, and I can deal with a complainer. Maybe even two or three on a good day. But Catherine's belly aching is it always spreads. Silence syndrome is related to um, stink stirring, but um, it's more passive. So students, uh, culprits in this one, well, Jill would be my, my, my uh, culprit here. When she's in the room, no one wants to participate in their learning. Kids don't want to be creative. Um, they don't want to share what they're thinking. They're scared to ask questions. They just hold back. Silence syndrome. And then finally, there's mischief outbreak. And Sam is my culprit here. I don't really get his, his method, but the other kids just want him to notice them. So if someone wants Sam to notice them, they, just, they do something disruptive. They act out. And then they turn and check, check in on Sam to see what his reaction and if he nods or smiles or laughs, they know that they've scored Sam's approval. So mischief outbreak is another one. What about our culprits? What draws them in? Followers emulate the negativity, basically, and, and we've got light cases and, and heavy cases. Now, with your lighter cases, it's simply about connecting with friends, peer pressure. We know, of course, that peer pressure is a factor in age. We're all attuned to what people think of us. We all are more likely to engage in risky behaviors if we know that our peers, our friends, will somehow notice us. But in the early teen years, adolescence, what happens inside the brain when peer pressure is a factor is stronger, stronger at that age than in the other age. So. Um, sometimes kids do bad stuff just because it's fun. It's a way to connect with their friends. Those are the lighter cases. In our heavier cases, it becomes a way to gain status within the group. Uh, and here, when we get into this area, we're dealing with a condition that's more difficult to address because now wrongdoing becomes tied to my sense of worth, my sense of status, and then security. Sometimes students engage in wrong, team up with their peers to do wrong, simply because if they don't, they're going to be made fun of. So they do that to avoid ridicule or rejection. It's 
easy to, to misdiagnose attitude germ as a motivational problem. The kids don't want to work, right? But we have to look deeper and be sensitive to um, the, the real struggles that some of our kids face. So, I find the acronym SOARS to be helpful here. Um, a life illustration may help. First of all, I guess, SOARS stands for security or earned significance. So now a life illustration. Question for you about how much time per day do you spend thinking about your foot? Your foot. Well, you probably don't think about it at all, do you? It's your foot. You expect your foot to be there for you, to do its job, so that you can focus on the things you want to focus on, your work, your hobbies, your family, the important things. But what if your foot gets sore? If you get a sliver down there, or maybe a wart down underneath your foot, or maybe a corn or something. Now, you start to give your foot special attention. It demands special care. You might redistribute its workload to other parts of your body. You might massage it at night or soak it, because now your foot wants your attention. You're not free to focus on the things you want to because your foot is demanding your attention. Well, attitude germ works like that. It embeds itself in those sensitive areas that we all have and demands attention. So kids aren't free to focus on their work. They're not free to focus on the learning community. Um, security is, re is really a biological need. It's related to our need to feel safe. So research shows that in group settings, our nervous systems need to know that, the, that we're accepted by the group in order to feel safe. So if children think that they need to somehow impress or win the approval of the most dominant student in order to be accepted by the group, we have a condition that's really difficult to dislodge. Significance isn't quite as strong. Um, I don't really consider that a biological urge. Some kids want to be seen as significant. They want to be noticed, but other kids seem more content to just blend in. But here's the thing. Each of us was created with significance by God. We're all significant. Each of us comes to the learning setting with something unique and beautiful to offer. But what attitude germ does is it somehow makes us think that our significance that God gave to us isn't enough. So we have to do things in order to earn that approval from our peers. Security or earned significance. I said that teachers also can become infected with attitude germ. We experience a different set of symptoms. We're not trying to be noticed as much, but we do want the group to accept us. We want that. I guess we do want to be significant in the eyes of students. But also when students, when a couple of students exert that much pressure, that much influence on my classroom, um, I feel like I'm constantly in conflict. That's stressful. That's, that, that produces anxiety. And I start to see discipline situations as these little conflicts that I somehow have to win to maintain control. And over time, um, I become more reactive. 
my incense. So my discipline methods might be the same, but they pick up a tinge of retaliation. Just, just yesterday, I'm embarrassed to say this, but yesterday someone did something and I reacted instead of acting in a way that, that kind of just happened so quickly. And over time, our discipline, if, if you notice over time that, that your um, response to discipline situations is more reactive and less done less in a way that guides, you may have succumbed to what I call attitude germ. So to treat attitude germ, um, that's where I'm going next. But I don't want to talk the whole time. I mean, I could. I have enough stuff that I could say, but I guess I would really uh, like to hear what you're thinking. And, and maybe if you're wondering anything, maybe we could talk about that just a little bit before we go. Does anybody have a question? Yes, Bill. Um, thank you so much. I really like this pathological view of <laughs> all students. Really now you know. It's not just you. Um, so uh, I just wondered whether that infection might uh, either originate from or sometimes lead to uh, parents of our students. Yeah, I, do, I mean, I think I know where you're going, but do you have an example? Um, I teach college students, and they're all wonderful in every way. Um, <laughs> as, are, as are your students as well, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, my wife, though, teaches fourth grade, and she has had situations before where um, there's a student who has um, a, a negative and sometimes persuasive uh, attitude, so it spreads. Yeah. Um, but then sometimes you start getting emails from the parents, and you start to realize that's kind of where it came from. Exactly. Exactly. So that you're you're working on that level too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how if you're if you're fighting the one infection at, at school, and then you've got another one yes. coming in after school. Any suggestions or advice on that? Yeah. You know, I've lived through that um, not this year, thankfully, but recently, yes. And I try. Well, and things that you're probably already doing. You're trying to, to maintain a positive connection, making a contact with that parent early in the year, a positive contact before those problems develop. But um, I also will just invite the parent to come in with the students after school and just talk about things. Here are the things that I'm noticing. Um, is there anything we can do to work together? And the most recent one I had last spring, the whole time I'm doing that, the dad is on his phone and, and reacting like that. <laughs> You know, just looking around or uh, reacting to things I'm saying, and I'm like, okay, now I know. <laughs> but the talk was good. It did shift some of that negativity because the parents could see now that I was on the side of their child, and that really helped. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. So I'm a high school math teacher, yeah. and um, it's always really intriguing. I'll occasionally get a parent at student teacher or parent teacher conferences who says, Well, I, I was always bad at math. Too. Oh, yes. So it's like, it's inherited yeah. that their child <laughs> is bad at math. And it's like, it's the complacency, but it's also like they're totally fine with the infection. Yes. They, they don't see a problem with it. It's like, as long as my kid passes, yes. we don't have high expectations for them because it's like, this kid's dad and I, both of us, were terrible at math, so like, we don't, it's like, right. yeah. so it's, yes, 
And so in that case, if it's, if sometimes it is a lack of confidence in learning that will bring out that behavior because I feel stupid at math. So if I act out, at least I can get attention that way. And so I guess what I, you know, it always has to be addressed on multiple levels. One is the behavior. How do we address the behavior? But the other one is trying to help that student just have some confidence in what they're learning. And that will help smooth out some of that, that drag as well to be defining significance. Thank you. We'll go on then. Um, treating attitude germ. Um, want to inoculate ourselves first because yeah, attitude germ is powerful, and if you give it the power, it holds it. It runs it. It will take you down. So how how do we how do we stay above react? One thing that's helped me is just. Um, the key that's been helpful to me is to try to get out of that conflict mode. Um, because again, when, when someone exerts that much control on my classroom, um, I, it, it, discipline situations start to look like conflicts. And then students who misbehave start to look like my adversaries. So what happens then is we, we kind of function in two different, mo different modes when we teach. When we're teaching, we're in this showing mode. We show kids how to do things. We let them interact with information. Uh, we have this whole, all of these demeanors, an open face and a smile, and then we're looking curious. Um, and, but when, when someone disrupts our class, chooses not to learn, or worse, um, causes others not to learn, we, we tend to leave that teaching mode behind and pick up this whole other mode, our discipline. So what I propose, and what I've tried to do in the last 10, 12 years, is try to stay in that teaching mode all the time. So I'm still responding to misbehavior. It's not just talking to kids about their behavior. There are still consequences. But whether I'm confronting or even you know, delivering a consequence, I try to remain in that teaching, that teaching mode. I try to see misbehaving students as as children who have something to learn uh, about learning, or how we learn, how we learn in the community. And those discipline situations, instead of conflicts, I try to see those as, as teaching opportunities. And I think instead of, um, instead of just explaining how that teaching mindset works in a little while, I'm just going to give some examples. So instigators, we need to provide ongoing care for our Jeremy students. And that one's kind of obvious. When, there, when there's a really um, negative student in a group or a really influential student and they influence others in bad ways, we always want to know, what do I do with the instigator? Because we know that if, if the troublemaker stopped making trouble, the others would be ready to learn, right? And so every wise teacher asks that question. How do I, how do I work with the troublemaker? But finally, and it's not enough to do that, we also have to work with our followers. We need to give them the tools to resist that, that defiance and negativity. If they're, if they're motivated to learn when the instigator isn't there, well then why shouldn't they always be motivated to learn? So we need to, we need to work with that group as well. So I talked a little bit about being the teacher. I guess that I already said I try to, I try to see discipline situations not as conflicts, 
but as teaching opportunities, I try to see my students not as my enemies, adversaries, but instead as, as students who have something to learn yet about how we learn in community. And so what I, do, what I try to do is, is boil the teaching process when we're delivering content down into these six areas. We plan what we're going to teach. We plan what, what will kids know or be able to do when I'm done teaching this stuff. Then we teach it. We don't just present information. We share. We show things. We invite kids in. Then we assess. We ask, did they get it? And then we reflect, how did it go? If they didn't make the learning target, we ask, well, what could I have done differently? What could I do differently to, to make it meaningful? And then we adjust, and then we persevere. We don't give up until we're convinced that our students have learned that material to the best of their ability. Well, what, what, if, we, what if we ran every discipline situation through this cycle? So what if in planning or trying to, what if in thinking about um, this behavior and how aggravating it is, what if we also imagine the kinds of behavior we wanted to see, not just for that student, but the whole classroom setting? And then what if instead of, of telling students things, what if, what if we taught them instead? And when we taught, we used that showing, those showing demeanors. And what if... Um, in checking if it worked, what if we, and it didn't work, what if we asked, dug deeper, and tried to figure out why? And in reflecting on that behavior that's not working after the first talk, after the first consequence, what if we also ask, like we do with teaching math or social studies and the kids aren't getting it, what, what can I do differently to make this clear to the student? And then if we adjust, and finally, what if we persevered? What if we saw discipline? as not a one-and-done operation, but instead as a lifelong process. What if we did that? That's what I mean by, by teaching. Some people think uh, the teaching mindset to discipline is we just throw out consequences and talk with students about their behavior. No, that's not what the teaching mindset is at all. It's about showing them the way. It's about sticking with it and persevering. Kind of the, way, the same way God does with us. So before uh, talking about these different strains of the attitude journey, um, I want to say that, that these are healing practices, not cures. Think of the theme of this year's conference, establish the work of our hands. We plant these seeds, right? We do things to increase the likelihood that our students will come along with us. Um, but it's really up to, to God's Holy Spirit to make this work. And so we go after these things with a lot of prayer. Here are the four that we're going to talk about. Um, let's start with Comedy Bug. Um, and this one, I'm not checking my, my text messages right now. I just want to make sure that I don't, don't run myself out of time here. Um, so Comedy Bug, as I said a little while ago, is not about that kind of laughter, not knocking laughter. Laughter is good, good for the brain, good for community. Um, but Comedy Bug is not interested in learning. It's not interested in, in, in community. It's only trying to divert attention to the, the instigator, to the cop, culprit. 
So I'm just, this morning as I was getting ready for today, I thought about a couple of recent situations. Um, one of them would be, one of them would be, would be Tommy. Um, Tommy's humor is always under the radar. So <coughs> I, and, um, I, I hear the laughter and then I find out what happened. Almost always, that's the way it works. So when I'm looking at Tommy, he's sitting there at his desk, his pencil is in his hand, he's looking at me like this. <laughs> and as soon as my gaze shifts to another part of the room, all the kids are laughing and they're all looking at Tommy. And I go, like that, and literally that quick, he's back to his studious <laughs> What do I do? Um, that's one situation. There's also Brady. And uh, Brady's humor is the same and different. I mean, his is more out of the open, but it's so unpredictable. So here's just one situation. I mean, this kind of stuff happens every day. I'm over here, I'm on my knees, helping a student with her math. And I hear Brady, um, he lets go of the biggest parts. Um, really, I mean, and I don't want to go into detail, but in 30 years of teaching, I have never heard any of it, even remotely close. And he's doing that kind of stuff. Making kids laugh. So, one thing I've learned, and as I've thought through all of this stuff, uh, when we when we deal with uh, attitude germ, especially comedy disorder, I've got to be really careful about not, or at least the way I address the instigator in class. I, I try not to do that because that just feeds them more attention. Something I call scoring double for making trouble. Right? The instigator first scores the attention of classmates by acting out and then gets even more attention by being reprimanded in front of his peers. So what I try to do instead is with this teaching mindset is make it all about the learning. I'm not going to get diverted and focus on the behavior. It's all about the learning here. We care about the, the behavior, but learning is our number one. So I focus more on the students who would be the followers in that situation. And I try to work with how teach them, teach them how they should behave. So when that happened with Brady that one day, I was over here on one knee helping the student, student with her math. And uh, his explosion was so loud and so shocking <laughs> that I actually had two or three seconds to think about what to do. <laughs> and say something like, I didn't think that was very funny. Now the key to making that work, I didn't think that was very funny, is to stop, 
stop and wait six or seven seconds and make eye contact with each person who's still giggling. And that seems like a long time, but it, that's really what it takes. And I haven't stopped teaching, by the way. I'm still teaching. I've just switched from teaching my science lesson to teaching students how we behave in, in the classroom. And the lesson I've quietly taught them in, in less than 10 seconds is that we don't give attention to kids who purposely draw attention away from learning. So I'm going to try it now just to give you the feel of what that's like, how long that takes. I didn't think that was very funny. Long time, isn't it? Feels long, but actually less than 10 seconds. You can make your point and then move on. Again, within this teaching mindset of discipline, um, we need to constantly think about how to teach our students to behave. And so also with the group, you can have entire groups that just get caught into this, this humor. I've got one like that this year. And they're so much fun. And really, I, I could get drawn in and we could laugh about stuff the whole class. Um, but I can't because I, we've got a job to do. So in those situations where the students just want to giggle about stuff all the time, um, I might reserve the last three minutes of class just to process um, how the learning went that day. Here are the, uh, some of the things that we laughed about today. These two things were really great. Um, they, the funny things students said were actually about things we were learning. And notice they didn't draw our attention away from the learning for very long. We were able to get back on track. Now this one, not so great. Um, it didn't relate to the learning. And, and some of you were still laughing about it three minutes after it was done. And we got to work on that. So again, explicitly, explicitly teaching them. Well, how, how do we do humor? God created us to laugh. And here's a secret. When I was in school, that's the thing that got me in trouble. I sometimes couldn't quit laughing. So I get it, what it's like to laugh. And that's a good thing. Um, but there are times to laugh. That's what I have to say about um, comedy disorder. That maybe, maybe you've experienced that kind of attitude germ in your room, and if you if you have, maybe you've got an idea that you can share um, something that works, or maybe a situation that you're wondering about. Maybe we can help each other out. Can I just ask a question? Would um, would you address the student after class and say, hey, uh, or do you just leave it leave it alone? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you'd want to address them after class. Yeah, let's make a plan about those big explosions, step outside or something. You know, do you yeah. address it still afterwards or drop it? Yeah, usually try. And sometimes I'm just so caught up in my teaching by the time class is over, I've totally forgotten. But, um, yeah. Then is it a big deal? Or can you just let it go? Yeah, you know, so in, in Rady's class, you know, there were so many hyperactive, impulsive kids that, you know, it was just one thing and like almost a constant stream that I was dealing with. But, yeah, um, when the time is right or, uh, yeah, when it's fitting, sure, definitely talk with them. You know, you had that urge. That was a natural urge. But, you know, look, really. <laughs> so. My question would be, what do you do when you want to burst out laughing? Because it's pretty funny, too. Just laugh when the kids are, 
uh, two minutes be done with it. Because yeah. sometimes they just need you to laugh with it. They do. Laugh with them for two minutes and you're done. Exactly. And, and then you say, we're done now, now we're going to go back. Yeah. And sometimes then it allows you to go back into it because they're finished with it. Yes. And that's what you know, I've talked about explicitly teaching what we laugh at, but that would be the implicit side. We know when sometimes we just, we just enjoy a good laugh together. And as you do that, over time, kids get a sense of, okay, this is laugh-worthy, and this is not. You know, it's, it's a long teaching. It's always a year-long process. You don't teach them one thing. Okay, now they've got it. It's, long. it's, a, it's a process. Like the way God works with us. Right? I was just going to say, when you see it's becoming like a pervasive behavior, that's attention-seeking again and again. Yeah. Would you say, or would you say, when you're reacting with the stare-down, because I use that quite often, yeah. you have to have a very flat affect. You do. You can't be reactive at yes. all. Yes. Any, either good or bad. You're right. Because you're right. then yeah. they feed off, it doesn't matter if you're attention seeking, you can be attention seeking positive or negative at that. Yeah. And you almost have to practice that because doing that, um, it's it's not so easy, easy to pull off. But yes, you almost have to practice. And I, I take a few calming breaths, you know, when you're inhaling, you're activating the sympathetic nervous system, the, the fight or flee part of our defense systems. And when you exhale, you're actually activating the parasympathetic, the calming system of the body. So I just try to, um, when I'm doing it, you know, just focus on the exhaling. And that calms me down and helps me to retain my control. Bill? It, it does occur to me, too, that if, if it ever happens that that kid does something appropriately funny, then that's a chance to really let them, yeah. I mean, that's a great gift if they're using it that way. It is, but they know they can impact the classroom in a positive way. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yes? Um, I'm still kind of formulating the question in my head. Yeah, I do have um, a couple of students where they kind of snigger to each other, like across the room, so it's not like, like a, you know, an exposed kind of humor. It's more of a subtle, like, behind the scenes, like, hey, we have an inside joke and we're laughing at each other. How would you deal with something like that? Yeah, like, as a constant, I mean, as an yeah, ongoing, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would probably talk with them and say, you know, again, that, that teaching moment, um, you know, you're, there are times that we have to, to work, you know, to, to play with each other. Recess would be a time in the classroom, no, you know, and if that continues, then we just got to step up the consequences. Yeah. <coughs> Like, um, I've got a. So I'm borrowing a computer today because. Oh, I'm actually on. Oh, goodness. Um, I forgot my charger cord at home, so this gentleman loaned me his computer, but every once in a while I have to retype um, my password, so forgive me for just a second. Yeah, it's like eight dots, so don't. Uh, there we are. All right, the next strain, attitude germ, inciting negativity, stink stirring. All right, so complaining, public complaining, and uh, complaining that becomes infectious, similar to similar to laughter. Um, complaining is not inherently 
that. Because I, I want my students to be able to confront people in positions of power. Someday they're going to grow up and take their places in our communities, in our government, in our churches, and, and they're going to have to deal with things like greed and waste and injustice. I want them to know how to confront authority figures in respectful ways. But once again, this strain of attitude germ, uh, the kids who complain and try to split, spread their negativity really aren't, they usually aren't interested in getting their problems solved. What they want to do is influence others. They want to make their presence known, and they do that by complaining and, and making other people complain. Um, so, um, and I, I talk about this, this situation. I don't call it um, that in my book, Beyond Control, but I do address the uh, the, the idea of kids spreading negativity uh, quite a bit. This, this book is actually on sale at the, the information desk if you're interested in it, or it's also on Amazon too. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time with st stink stirring, but I wanted to say a couple of things. We really have to address it on, on um, three levels. One is, one is just the classroom context with the teaching mindset. We always come back and ask, what type of classroom atmosphere am I trying to make, uh, to, to create? How do we build and strengthen this learning community? So uh, one thing to remember to, to ward off this type of attitude germ is to create a collaborative classroom. And by collaboration, collaborative actually means working together. It's not setting up your classroom as a democracy, really. Um, you're still the teacher. You're still in charge. But students start to see the classroom not as my classroom, but as our classroom together. And so their ideas matter. Their questions matter. And over time, as, as you teach students uh, to, to provide input in positive ways, they, they get a sense that that, they, that their, their ideas and their questions can actually shape their learning experience. So a collaborative classroom would be the context. Um, I also recommend explicitly teaching students how to voice their complaints. Everyone feels upset once in a while. Everyone feels disgruntled once in a while. And so teach your students if you're upset about something, here's the way I want you to to talk to me and then provide a format for doing so. Maybe it's a suggestion box. Maybe a specific time of the day where they can come and see you. I kind of like the, the love and logic system. I don't totally buy love and logic. I think there are places where that thought system breaks down. But they've got some great, uh, great one-liners, something like, um, I argue at, at 10 in the morning and at 5.30 daily. Um, so I'm just telling kids when they can come and argue with you so giving and teaching kids how to voice complaints respectfully and then setting limits. I don't allow public complaining. It's just too toxic. We're not going to do that. So I, I have consequences if you're going to complain or argue with me in front of others. There are consequences for doing that. So again, I would like to spend a little more time in other areas since I spend time with that one in my book. But does anybody have an experience you would like to relate or, or talk about specifically? Or anything that's helped you in your situation? 
Some years it's worse than others. Last last year I dealt with was a lot. This year I haven't had to Yeah, go ahead. How about a student that comes in that is completely like facially um, negative? Like I have a student that comes in that never smiles at that one. They just sit there and it's, it's, they radiate negativity. Yeah. So what you're saying is it's not isolated. They're negativity. They're not stressed. complaining out loud. Yeah. They just come in with an attitude and they wear that Excellent question. That's actually where we're going next. Well, the only time I've ever seen her smile is in her photo in the yearbook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. right. So you almost have to wonder if there's more going on. Mm -hmm. You know, the um, next session is about you know brain research and classroom behavior. I've learned so much in the last year about about things, factors outside of school that influence classroom behavior. So yeah, almost fun. Thank you. Who has self-talk. Oh yeah, putting she's themselves. Good at anything and she says, I'm bad at this, I'm no good at this. And yeah. she vocalizes that. Yeah, so vocalizes it out loud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, probably multiple levels. On one level, I would work with that student and um, try to build a sense of confidence in whatever way works. It might be providing encouragement when she gets when she when she does succeed at something. Um, I had a boy last year who did that a lot, and um, how was that again? How did I respond to him? Um, he actually was was pretty good at learning, and so um, once in a while I would come over by his desk and say, you know, you really did well at that. That really went well. And then, or I would say, and he was also very motivated by what his friends were thinking. He would make a comment like that and look around. At, at what the, the instigator in the class was, how was, he was reacting to his comment. And sometimes I would just say, you know, you're struggling with this right now. I can see that. But when I look around, I look at so-and-so, your friends, when they're, they struggle too, and when they struggle, I don't, I don't see them saying that. You know, they just stick with it, or they maybe they, they ask, or they raise their hand, and I come over and help them. And, you know, I don't see them doing what you're doing. I'm just wondering why you have to talk about it out loud. Yeah, that's, that's what I did, I guess. Maybe somebody else has input. Yes, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm just saying, uh, I have a student come to me, complain to me about other teachers, and they want me to talk to that teacher. Okay. i just having trouble to pick sides. Yeah, so I'm curious, how old is the student? Um, eighth grade. Eighth grade, interesting. So they're, try they're probably trying to play different teachers against the middle, I would guess, play you off of each other. So I, I would... Personally, would encourage that person to, to say, you know, just, oh man, wow, yeah, have you tried? I can see where that would, you know, make you sad or irritate you. Have you asked that teacher? You know, have you asked them about your situation? <laughs> try to try to, you know, help them take ownership of that problem. But yeah, I would not. I would work very hard at not talking about the other teacher unless they've tried and it's gone nowhere. Okay, then we got to figure something out. All right, well, thank you. I really do appreciate the, the questions. I mean, I see the situation from my perspective, but it's always good to know um, where, where you are in your situation. I think we'll go on to all right, silence syndrome. So the person in the back asked, what do you do with someone who just 
They don't complain out loud, but they seem to radiate negativity. And this one for me is the hardest one to deal with. I remember back to my first year, and now this is, I have to be careful because one of my very first students is here today. <laughs> so anyway, but uh, Lisa, hi. <laughs> but actually, this was not your class. This was my eighth grade uh, class this, that year. Um, they, they, they intentionally um, would, maybe they knew this bug me, and they just enjoyed seeing me getting nervous. But, uh, they would come to my Bible class, and they wouldn't talk. They would not talk. I suppose someone said in the hall, okay, nobody's talking in Manster's room today. They would come in, and they would sit. And so I was a Bible teacher, and every day I felt like I had to have a 40-minute sermon ready to go. <laughs> oh, my goodness, was that hard. Um, and I really didn't know what to do. Now, now that I've taught for 30 years, I, I have plenty of things that I could do to draw them in. But um, silence syndrome. Again, is another strain of attitude germ. Quite often, is someone a strong personality in the group who um, who doesn't, for whatever reason, um, and again, I'm just going to say it's Jill in this case, and she doesn't even have to comment. The kids somehow sense her mood, and when she's in the room, if she if she likes the learning activity, it flies. If she disengages, the whole bunch shuts down. Um, so how do you how do you compete with that? Well, basically you can't. You don't compete with that. So to to figure out how to address silence syndrome, I'm going to return to my definition of attitude germ. And I guess I haven't said that definition here, but it is in the the description of today's session. Attitude germ is a condition that holds classrooms captive to the sentiments of one or two dominant personalities. Those who spread the disease gain power by demotivating others or by encouraging resistance. But now there's more to that definition that becomes important here with silence syndrome, quiet negativity. Victims emulate the negativity to preserve status or to avoid ridicule or rejection. You see, negative instigators, the students who, when they're in the room, they radiate negativity, and now everybody else holds back. Those students, for whatever reason, think that they get to set the standards for what should be considered cool or fun or acceptable and what should not. How do you compete with that? Well, you don't. At least I don't. I can't. But what I can do is offer the students, the followers, two things that the instigator is reluctant to provide. One, a sense of self-worth that transcends, that exists apart from the opinions of others. And two, the freedom to think for themselves. So day after day, daily, hourly, minutely almost, I'm feeding that sense of self-worth to students. And to do that, you don't have to run around giving students compliments all day. They know if you're sincere. But you can give them that sense of worth in themselves by interacting with them, by taking an interest in their lives. Our previous school guidance counselor, uh, Krista Smith, she's now moved on to another school, but she told me not long ago 
The number one complaint I hear from kids, my parents are too busy. They don't want to talk with me. I try to tell them about this problem, and they're too busy. They don't want to listen. How's that? Well, we can provide that connection for our students. Sometimes kids act out. Sometimes they're being like that because they just want connection, right? So if we can somehow <coughs> let our students know that they have value apart from what Jill thinks, apart from anybody else thinks, um, we give them that freedom. We give them that security in themselves. They don't always have to check in with Jill. And then the freedom to think for themselves. And here I go back to the idea of, of creating a class, collaborative classroom atmosphere. If students figure out over time that their questions matter and their ideas matter, and if they can voice those in respectful ways and shape their own learning experience, once again, they don't have to check with the instigator whenever they're going to make a decision. And then finally, make sure I'm not forgetting anything here. Yeah. Inducing a state of self-forgetfulness. Self Let me explain it this way. So, so I, I'm not, I can't compete with the instigator because I'm not, I'm not that cool. I mean, they have the cool haircut. When I go to my beautician, she tries to cut my hair in a way that looks like I actually have more. <laughs> I, I, get my, I, I buy my clothing at thrift stores, not because I can't afford other new clothes, just because I like to shop at thrift stores. I, I'm not as funny as they are. I, I don't listen to the latest music. My, the songs of my play, the bands on my playlist had their peak during the Jimmy Carter era. <laughs> I'm just not that cool. But I can, I can provide that self-worth that exists, that the, the, the instigator is reluctant to provide. I can give them the freedom to, to think for themselves. But I can also do my best to inspire them to learn. And I call that inducing a state of self-forgetfulness. I'm not going to give myself, an, as an example here, I'm going to talk about two of the most inspiring teachers I've ever had. Um, this is one of them, Mr. Vandenberg, my seventh grade Bible teacher. Uh, this, and I, as irony would have it, I bumped into him at a track meet last spring. That's where we are. He now lives in the state of Montana. He was my teacher in Oskaloosa. And um, it took me for a while for to explain who I actually was. But then he remembered. And as irony would have it, his grandkids attend our school. I teach my teachers grandchildren. And the thing I remember about Mr. Vandenberg is the way that he threw us into the stories of the Bible. You know how 7th and 8th grade students can work up these arguments with you about why we should ever learn this stuff if it's never going to make us any money? Well, two, three minutes into Mr. Vandenberg's classes, those questions never occurred to us because we were were so caught up in the stories themselves, the plot twists, the, the characters and their voices, the humor. Um, he just had a way of, of drawing us in. He just forgot about all of the things that we were concerned about as, as 13, 14 year olds. Miss Aarons was the, was the same way. I don't have a picture of her, but she was my, my choir teacher through most of grade school. And 
with her method was she just had these eyes, and she could she could picture not just the way they looked, but her eyes pictured things that weren't even in the room. So she would say she would tell us something like the, the way a diminuendo, if we did it right, would quiet the babies in the back row of the auditorium, and would wake up the grandparents. Their eyes would open. And then she would look right at us as she was saying that stuff. And then it was almost like she was looking through us until we could see it too. And before you know it, we were making the sound she wanted to hear. And when she was that way with us, we forgot all about our voices that would always crack when we were going through puberty and all that stuff. We forgot about you know, we forgot about that. She made us forget about ourselves. She um, and, and, I, and when I look back at, at my junior high years, I'm sure there were kids who thought that, that learning Bible stories and, and singing were dumb, but I don't remember the impact that they had in our classes. What I remember is that the way those teachers inspired in me a love for the stories of the Bible and singing because of the way they were with us. So, silence syndrome, uh, once again... Give kids self-worth so they don't have to get their worth from the instigator. Um, give them the freedom to think for themselves. And then finally, um, induce that state of, of self-forgetfulness by trying to be an inspiring teacher. And then finally, um, encouraging misbehavior, mischief outbreak. I told you earlier about Sam, the culprit here. And it's not like he really even does anything in my room, but the kids all just want him to notice them. So they act out and then they check and see what, he's, what his reaction is because they all want to. If he approves of them, then they know that the group approves of them. Um, I guess before I go there, I've, I've I talked about the silence syndrome and somebody had a great question about that. Does anybody else have a question about what to do in that scenario? Uh, yes, go ahead again. Yeah, I am so happy to hear about this because now I feel like I'm not alone. I teach yeah. Spanish. My kids will not speak it in front of each other so there's an affective, affective filter issue going on too. But I have that and I don't know who the instigators are. And there's several of them. A very intelligent quiet, shy students in the class but also students that struggle immensely with cool haircuts ah, um, yes. that are afraid to even try because they don't want to look foolish. Um, but I have one student in that mix who wants to do a good job and participate, but does so in a way that is funny so he doesn't look stupid. So that one is acting out, participating, but now making people laugh. Yeah, doing his vocabulary words in um, a variety of voices. <laughs> Very entertaining, but um, not actually breaking the assignments in the classroom. So, yeah, right. And that's just know. one section, right? That's or one section one of the work. And it's interesting that our 8th grade class, I have two very wonderful sections of 8th grade students that come in two classrooms that do the silent thing. That it, you're right, it just kills you with that. You don't know what to do with that. It's the hardest strain of attitude, in my mind. I the just hardest. power through it. Yeah. Power through, teach, mm -hmm. get them up over and around. But they yeah. still, they don't want to do it. They don't want to interact in front of each other. Will they interact in small groups and not in front of their Sometimes. Sometimes. I try one-on-one. -on -one, I think I find it's easiest. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever ask, like, just put it out there, like, I've noticed you're really quiet today. You know, 
all of us. And you can't tell yet who the instigator is. There's a group of about four girls that I feel like if you walk out of the room, they're going to talk about you behind your back. Oh, right. yeah. One really cool guy with a really awesome hair. Yeah. And he knows all the cool music. He wears all the cool clothes. He's yeah. also part of that. Right. So it's like, you know how you say there's one instigator in my room? There's five. Yeah, yeah. And then I don't know what angle to attack that. Yeah, yeah, that's hard. They've got the power. They're in control, right? Yeah. Um, anybody have a suggestion on that? Bill. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I've talked. Well, one of the things that I, I mean, taught real classes. <laughs> one of the things that I always noticed, though, was if, if something happens in the classroom, if you do something that's funny, and everyone in the classroom is laughing, but you notice two or three people who aren't, those people are probably your, your instigators. Um, and that's, I mean, that's one way. And then the other way, you already mentioned, Al, which is you, you watch the, the turns of the heads and who they're checking with. Like, so if a, if a follower does something that's a little edgy, and right away they're turning to look at so-and-so, the person they're turning to is not only the, I mean, if you have four or five, that'll tell you who the head instigator is, which is really interesting. It doesn't mean you solve the problem, but at least you know you're dealing with it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. All it's set. It's sneaky and tricky. Yeah, yeah. In that situation, could you divide and conquer? Like, you do small groups, but one of those instigators in each of the groups. So. Yeah, I suppose once you figure out who they are. frustrated with attitude germ always want to know what they can do to turn their instigators around so I'm going to get just one story that occurred not too long ago about dealing with an instigator but I want to end up with talking about following again so one of my instigators I'm just going to call him Tyson in this comment in this situation um, Tyson's a really smart kid I mean someday if, if I 
if I get sick or if I need surgery, I would want the, I would want him to be my surgeon. He's just that smart. If I ever got in trouble, I would want a lawyer like him to be pleading my case. But in the classroom, he'd really be annoying. I mean, he needs maybe this much of his brain space to learn stuff, and he's got all of the rest of his working memory to antagonize and situations. And I. I was so tired of it one day, I pulled him out of the study hall, brought him into my room, and I just, I just reprimanded him, and he listened, just listened, and when I was done, um, I could see him smirk. I shouldn't ask, are we almost out of time? We are out of time. Okay, I didn't know that. So, if you need to leave, I'm fine with that. So, so I said, the next day, I came back and I, I planned a, a, a speech for him. I said, Tyson, in order to teach, I have to do two things. I have to make learning meaningful, but I also have to motivate. And motivating is like lighting a little fire in the mind because it gets the mind ready to learn. Sometimes it seems like you, you like to take, you like to, you like to douse those learning fires. And I had a spray bottle with my hand, and I, I missed the air. What do you think you could do instead? He looked at my lot for a while and I said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, it seems like you've been given, given a gift for leadership. I did not say that sarcastically. <laughs> you have a gift for leadership. What do you think you could do to help me light the learning fires instead? And we talked about some ideas. And it wasn't a turning point. He didn't just turn around because kids who are instigators really like the power they hold. But it was a turning point in that he learned that he could not be in control of the way that I responded to him. I was going to share other ideas, too, for, for responding to his followers, but I'm willing to do that if you would like to have a conversation with me. I don't want to overtime. So thank you, everyone, for coming.